I'm Chelsea, and I still love true crime. And I'm David, and I still love horror movies. And welcome to Behind the Screams. This episode was originally created for our Patreon listeners as an exclusive, but since the show is on hiatus, we thought it'd be a great way to give something new to most of you. We may have references to news events that are now far in the past, and also the style of these former Patreon episodes is a little different than our regular episodes, but we hope you enjoy the show. In the 15th century, conflicts between the Ottoman Empire and neighboring Wallachia rock Eastern Europe. The Wallachian army was led by Vlad Tepish, whose harrowing tactics gave him the nickname Vlad the Impaler. But there was another name he went by, one that has become ingrained in our popular culture. That name was Dracula. This is based on a true crime. Without further ado, let's talk about vampires. Well, let's talk about bloodthirsty people to start with. Ooh, yes, indeed. Vlad III, known as Vlad Tepish, or Vlad the Impaler, was born in 1431, the second son to Vlad II. Vlad II was the voivode of Wallachia and was given the surname Dracul after he joined a Christian military order known as the Order of the Dragon. Therefore, Dracul equals dragon. Later, Vlad Tepish would become known as Dracula, meaning the son of the dragon. The locations of Wallachia Wallachia and nearby Transylvania, where Vlad II had his castle, were of global significance because it stood as a barrier between the Ottoman Empire and Christian Europe. Thus, it became the location of many battles fought to stave off invasion by the Ottoman army. In 1442, Vlad Tepish and his younger brother Radu were brought along on a diplomatic meeting with Sultan Moran II, the Ottoman Sultan, in Gallipoli. The meeting was a trap, and all three were arrested. Vlad Dracul was later released, but his two sons were kept as collateral. Vlad II continued to work to undermine the Ottoman Empire and supported opposing forces, believing that his sons had already been killed. However, in 1446 or 1447, he agreed to pay tribute to the Ottoman Sultan and recognize his sovereignty. As a result, in 1447, Vlad II and his elder son, Mircea, were murdered by John Hunyadi, the voivode of Transylvania. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting word. I feel like I am not a historian, but my understanding is they're basically the leader. It's not necessarily like being like a king. It's more of like a military leader, but the person, like the highest ranking person in, you know, in the case of Vlad II, Wallachia, in the case of John Hunyadi, Transylvania. But, you know, everyone kind of has different affiliations. So John Hunyadi is actually, although he's the voivode of Transylvania, he's a Hungarian. So he's got a lot of connections there. And then and then people like Vlad II and his son, Vlad Dracul, you know, everyone's kind of looking out for their own interests. So, you know, recognize the Ottoman Empire when it's beneficial to do that or fight against them when it's beneficial to do that. So it's, it's pretty interesting. But Vlad Vlad Tepish and his brother Radu were released later that year and they went straight to Wallachia. During their time in captivity, although they were captives, they were also basically raised as princes. They were raised alongside the, the son of the sultan and given you know, a very good education and actually even war training, which Vlad Tepish, Vlad the Impaler, would later use against the Ottoman Empire. So Picked up some jokes skills. on them. Yeah. Yep. 
Well, the death of his father and his elder brother gave Vlad Tepish a claim to rule in Wallachia, but Hunyadi had appointed Vladislav II, the son of Vlad Dracul's cousin, as the new voivode. With an Ottoman army at his back, Vlad Tepish broke into Wallachia in September of 1448, and he took over rule there for several months while Hunyadi and Vladislav II were fighting the Ottomans in Kosovo. Eventually, Vladislav II returned and chased Vlad Tepish out of Wallachia and into exile. Over the next eight years, Vlad bided his time. He made nice with Hunyadi and he was eventually given the job of defending the Transylvanian border. Finally, in mid-1446, Vlad Tepish invaded Wallachia with the support of Hunyadi and the Hungarian army, and Vladislav II was killed during the invasion. So Vlad Tepish became the new voivode of Wallachia. The first thing Vlad Tepish did after gaining this power was to execute all of the nobles who had been involved in the plot to assassinate his father and older brother. The legend goes that he invited hundreds of them over for dinner and he had them all stabbed and then impaled. Um, and this this impaling, you know, Vlad the Impaler, what he's known for, it's you know, not just, you know, stabbing someone and hoisting them up. It's actually, it's pretty gross. It's very carefully done because you don't actually want the person to die. So sometimes they'll use blunt sticks and put them, you know, up the backside or front side, depending on where there's a hole. And you, know, you want to be very careful not to damage the internal organs because what you want is for people to see this person alive and suffering while being impaled. So sometimes they'd be impaled that way. Other times it would be kind of through the middle, but still hoisted up. Uh, so yeah, real nasty. My guts are real squirming gross. right yeah, now. Yeah. And it's, it's all about tactically, it's all just about making people be so afraid that they're going to stay in line. And, you know, it's about building that reputation. So since he became known as Vlad the Impaler, clearly he did something right. I guess so. That's hardcore right there. Yeah. So Vlad established a new order in Wallachia of rewarding the money and property of those he executed to chosen subjects, rather than allowing the money to stay in noble families. This had the double benefit of weakening the nobility while gaining favor with those he bestowed the fortunes upon. During this time, Vlad continued to pay tribute to the Ottoman Sultan as his father had. This led to further conflicts between Vlad and Hunyadi's successor after Hunyadi died in 1456. Vlad led multiple raids against the Saxons living in Transylvania, during which he gathered together and impaled men, women, and children. By the end of 1457, they successfully negotiated peace, and yet as soon as the following year, Vlad was killing nobles sent to Wallachia under good terms from Transylvania. He also impaled 41 Saxon merchants after a trade deal went sour and gathered 300 boys from the villages the merchants came from and killed them as well. His treatment of the Saxons is likely to be the source of many rumors about him, although it is unknown how much of them is true. One rumor was that he drank the blood of his enemies or dipped his bread in their blood, and that he liked to eat his meal surrounded by dead bodies on spikes, as you do. They also said that he ate the flesh of his enemies and that he entertained himself by torturing people. In any case, peace with the Saxons was finally achieved in 1460, and around the same time, Vlad stopped paying tribute to the new Ottoman sultan, Mehmed II, leading to the Ottoman War. In one early conflict, a group of Ottoman diplomats were sent to his castle in Wallachia. When they refused to remove their hats due to their religious customs, Vlad had the hats nailed to their heads before sending them back. So I think even without dipping bread in the blood of his enemies, uh, he's definitely not someone you want to cross. No, very theatrical too 
too. That's like, uh, here's your party favor. Nail your hat to your, your yeah. own hat to your head. Well, Vlad led many successful raids against the Ottomans. Due to being held in captivity, he spoke fluent Turkish, and he used this skill to trick the commanders of one Ottoman fortress to open the gates, allowing his soldiers to enter and slaughter everyone. Very tricksy. Mehmed II declared that Vlad's younger brother, Radu, who was more loyal to the Ottomans, should be the ruler of Wallachia. He raised an army of more than 90,000 people and began to invade Wallachia. Vlad's army of 30,000, mostly conscripted peasants, was vastly outnumbered, and they began to retreat. And along the way, unfortunately for residents of Wallachia, they adopted a scorched earth policy. So they would torch crops and poison wells so that the invading army would have nothing to eat or drink as they came through these villages. By June of 1462, the army made it to Targ Viste, the capital of Wallachia. With nowhere left to retreat, Vlad and a small group of men dressed in Turkish clothing and raided the Ottoman camp at night in an attempt to assassinate the sultan. Sadly, they got lost and they were not able to complete their mission, but they were able to sow a lot of confusion among the camp. And actually, many of the Ottoman soldiers ended up killing each other, thinking that, you know, because they were all wearing the same clothing, they were the enemy. And Vlad and his men were able to sneak out. Trixie, Trixie. As much as many of the things he does are just absolutely terrible you know was it all's fair in love and war no <laughs> no no don't don't impale people but like his tactics are kind of on point i mean he's he's a hero to a lot of people still living in the area i think he's still even like on on the money in maybe romania because he stopped the ottomans he just did it by killing many people and women and children and uh in really gruesome ways yeah, yeah yep definitely well at the end of june the ottomans finally entered targoviste when they did they found the city abandoned and the ottomans found within the city a seven acre forest of impaled bodies this discovery was written about as follows quote the sultan's army entered into the area of the impalements which was 17 stades long and seven stades wide there were long stakes there on which as it was said about 20,000 men women and children had been spitted quite a sight for the turks and the sultan himself the sultan was seized with amazement and said that it was not possible to deprive of his country a man who had done such great deeds, who had such a diabolical understanding of how to govern his realm and its people. And he said that a man who had done such things was worth much. The rest of the Turks were dumbfounded when they saw the multitude of men on the stakes. There were infants, too, affixed to their mothers on the stakes, and birds had made their nests in their entrails. Pretty gross, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's an interesting reaction from the Sultan also. No, this is your your enemy and he's just done something so terrible to Turkish prisoners of war. And he's like, Wow, cool. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate you. I'm like, no. Yeah, I can't see Bella Lugosi doing that. Oh no, he's a gentleman. Yeah. Well, in total, more than 20,000 Ottoman prisoners of war were killed to create the display in order to scare the Ottomans, and this tactic worked. Mehmed II retreated shortly after. Despite the cruelty of his tactics, Vlad was celebrated across much of Europe and by the Pope for staving off the Ottoman invasion. However, his victory was short-lived. Fear of the Ottomans drove many Wallachians to side with Radu. Vlad eventually retreated into the Carpathian Mountains, and Radu took over rule of Wallachia. Vlad was imprisoned in Hungary for more than 10 years. He was eventually released in order to fight against Basarab Lyota, the new ruler of Wallachia who'd taken over the throne from Radu and had the support of the Ottomans. 
For about two months, Vlad was able to regain his rule in Wallachia, but in January of 1477, Vlad was killed in battle. His body was cut to pieces, and his head was sent to Mehmed II, where it was displayed above the gates of Constantinople. The end. The end for old Vlad. Yeah, hopefully none of you are scholars on the Ottoman War, because I know that was greatly abbreviated. I know because I, I did the abbreviation. It's It's just quite a hole to fall down. There is so much out there, and it's... I mean, it's it's fascinating. I really enjoyed reading a little bit more about him because I, I knew nothing except that he had a reputation for impaling people. I did not know he was considered a hero anywhere. Quite I a only tactician. knew, Yeah, I really only knew about the impaling. So probably many of you, most of you are familiar with the story of Dracula. And you might have noticed that there's actually not that much in common between the two stories besides really the name and the location. So, you know, although Vlad Tepish was actually the ruler in Wallachia, Transylvania is very close by. So there is some connection to the area. And then, of course, the name of Dracula is his name. There are also rumors that he drank blood and ate people's bodies. These these rumors, it seems like, are probably not true, and they were actually probably started because Vlad Tepish was Orthodox Christian, so something like that would be completely the antithesis of what you know, his religion would, would be teaching. He was so fearsome, right, in his war tactics that, I mean, of course he eats flesh of humans and drinks their blood. I mean, I mean he's, who... he's making shish kebabs, right? Yeah. Uh, sorry, bad joke. Um, but yeah, I think that you know there was a lot to fear about him, and I think that it was maybe easy for people to believe someone who could impale children you know would be fine drinking their blood or dipping bread in it or washing his hands in it all all of those rumors there is also a local legend in that area uh Wallachia and Transylvania and that's about the Moroi and these are believed to be children who die before they're baptized and because there's no purgatory in their religion the children would uh, wander around the earth still while they wait to you know move on to to the next stage and they believe that these children would feed on the blood of cattle so people would put pots of milk outside of their stables to try to get these children to drink that instead of drinking the the blood of cattle wow. which i don't think they're actually children running around drinking the blood of cattle it's just all part of the the story you didn't grow up running around drinking the blood of cute little cows nope I never have. And then in terms of the more modern vampire mythos, this also has some root in, in true events. It's a great episode of lore about it, but I cannot remember for the life of me what the episode's called, but it's an early one. <laughs> so you know, when bad things would happen, particularly when it would happen in you know families, so multiple people in the family, like a mother and child and sibling all, all dying, sometimes to try to get to the bottom of it, they would go and look at you know, recently deceased bodies. And when they would dig up these bodies, there were, you know, what, what we know now are signs of decomposition. But at the time, they did not know. So things like um, skin retreating on people's hands made it look like the fingernails were growing. Skin, like gums retreating would make it look like teeth were growing. There could also be some bodily fluids that would start coming out of the mouth that looked like fresh blood. So, you know, clearly this is a person who grew long fingernails and long teeth and then bit someone and sucked their blood, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. They would also see, particularly in cold weather, they would dig up a body of someone who had died a while back and they looked like they were you know still alive they nothing had happened to them at all you know we know now well 
the cold weather is going to slow down the the decay process but they didn't know that so clearly this is just something else it's a creature of the night right Uncle charlie's a vampire (laughs) yeah and then there were also you know more more traumatic ones that i don't like to think about like people who were buried alive and that's why they didn't quite decay right oh yeah put a bell on my grave that's for sure yeah Yeah, put a little string all the way down Mm -hmm. yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Ooh. Oh, those stories really freak me out. Yeah, um, that's why you got to cremate me. My ashes can't scream. Yeah, I think I'd prefer that actually to being buried alive. If I'm like <laughs> yeah. unconscious at the time of cremation, like okay. Yeah. And then I just wanted to touch upon one more thing before we get into the movie. Uh, this is something interesting that I had not heard about or read about. Um, but Orion Blackwood on Patreon brought up on our our poll, and there's actually been quite a bit written about this topic, and that's anti-Semitism in Dracula. So beyond there just being some some very blatant remarks like you know the the physical description that they give of Jewish characters in the book there's also some parallels that have been written about where Dracula is kind of depicted as this foreigner from Eastern Europe who's trying to infiltrate British society and this book was written at a time when there was a lot of Jewish immigration into England there's also the fact that this was released just a few years after Jack the Ripper and if you remember our Jack the Ripper episode I, th- I think we talked about you know leather apron this guy that you know a lot of the public was trying to pin the the murder on and it's kind of leading to a lot of anti-semitic sentiment at the time and then of course there's this idea of blood libel and this was a lie that was told that really led to so much persecution against jewish people and jewish communities saying that they use the blood of christians especially christian children in their religious rituals and that they used it to make matzah bread man yeah that's that's another Another rabbit hole that I, I fell down. That's just my gosh, yes. So so yeah, there's a ton written about it. I think it's it's very interesting. And for anyone who's read the story of Dracula, which I haven't, I've only seen the movie. You know, I, I think that you might get a lot out of just reading and becoming familiar with that. So you're saying there was a book? Oh yeah, <laughs> the book actually came out after the movie. <laughs> no. The, uh, the book came first and then, well, there was something in between the movie, which we will talk about in just a second. So sit tight. We'll be right back. Dracula. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 Thousands. Millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula, the original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat, and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? Oh, what, what's he done to you, today? Tell he, me. He came to me. He opened a thing in his arms, and he made me drink. <laughs> Thank you. 
After the mysterious Count Dracula lures Renfield, a British soldier, into his Transylvania castle to become his mindless slave, they travel by ship to London to take up residence in an old castle. During the journey, however, Renfield is captured. Left to his own devices, Dracula begins feeding on the blood of young women, transforming them into vampires. He soon sets his sights on Mina. When the Count's true intentions are revealed, Dr. Van Helsing must stop Dracula before Mina's mortal life is forever destroyed. So if you've seen Dracula, there's a lot that happens besides that. But um, what a fun classic movie. Yes, I love it. I feel like I would need my dad to cooperate. But this is probably one of the first universal movies I've seen. No, maybe maybe Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, but I love this one. Yeah, it's, it's really good. You know, I've seen it numerous times over the years. And for this episode, we screened the completely restored version on the Universal Monsters Blu-ray collection. And there's a great little mini documentary showing how they uh, pulled the original negatives and they cleaned it up and they did a lot of work to recapture its original splendor and i think it probably looks better than it did when it came out it looked great i also loved the extra feature where they talk about the spanish version of dracula which i guess was filmed like at the same time with all the same sets and just different actors yeah Yeah, that's pretty cool yep definitely uh so you know we we just got done talking about Vlad Tepish and uh, his moniker of uh, Dracul. And, uh, his moniker of Dracula. Dracula. Son, yes, of Dracul. son of Dracula. And so this film that came out in 1931 is based on Bram Stoker's 1897 novel Dracula. Due to budgeting purposes, it would have been rather expensive to have done a complete literal adaptation of the Bram Stoker novel. And so... You know, they kind of created a lot of of stuff and cut some things and and changed a lot in order to make the movie a little bit more budget-friendly. In fact, there's a book, and before this, there is a 1924 play written by Hamilton Dean and John L. Balderston. This is pretty cool because, um, well, Bela Lugosi played Dracula in the play before the film was ever made. Oh, that's awesome. I had no idea. It's interesting. Universal was going to make a huge big budget adaptation of the novel and they were going to adhere to the novel pretty closely but the stock market crash of 1929 happened and the great depression was in full swing so rather than risk this huge investment on a movie they decided to make it an adaptation of the screenplay and in fact the broadway production of dracula starring bella lugosi opened at the fulton theater on october the 5th of 1927 and it ran for 261 performances Bella Lugosi played Dracula and then toured the country with the show. So that was uh, that was pretty cool. And it was extremely successful. So I can imagine audiences at the time being really, you know, excited about being able to see this on the big screen um, without having to travel, you know, to some city far away. So it'd be like the equivalent of if they turned Hamilton into a movie. Yes, exactly. Yeah. exactly. They should do that. Yeah, totally. It was adapted from the play by the two authors. And there were some contributing writers to the script of the film. Louis Bromfield, Todd Browning, the director, uh, Louis Stevens, Max Cohen, and Dudley Murphy. You heard the name Todd Browning. He is the director who is was uh, pretty prolific. And uh, I think this is his greatest film. I think it's maybe the only one I've 
seen by him. Well, there are a couple of genre movies of his that I thought would be really cool to give a shout out. His follow-up film to Dracula was 1932's Freaks. And that's rather notorious. One of the things that I've read was that audiences found it too shocking at the time. And it was due to the fact that I guess there were a lot of carnival sideshow performers in the movie. Yeah, we should do that one maybe for a, a Patreon episode because I know it's not based on a true crime, but there are some very interesting stories that I've read about you know both those sideshows at the time and then actually some actors who were in the movie. Uh, so it could be cool to talk about the, the real life connections at least. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of a, a crime film too. So it's got that going for it. It was actually originally 90 minutes and the studio was so kind of shocked by the result that they trimmed it down to just over 60 minutes. And then apparently a lot of that footage was destroyed. So flipping back in time a little bit. In 1927, Todd Browning directed London After Midnight, which is about the abandoned home of a man who supposedly committed suicide five years earlier and is inhabited by a group of ghoulish figures who could be vampires. And this one features Lon Chaney. That sounds really fun. I would definitely watch that. Yeah, um, we'll wait till you hear this next one. I believe it was the same year called The Unknown, and it's about a criminal on the run who hides in a circus and seeks to possess the daughter of the ringmaster at any cost. It stars Lon Chaney and Joan Crawford, so... I'd watch that one, too. In 1935, he did Mark of the Vampire, which, again, features Bela Lugosi, who plays Count Mora, not Count Dracula. He did a lot of movies in the early 19-teens as well. Okay, so we're going to jump into the cast, Chelsea. Bella Gossi, Count Dracula. I love him. He's really great in this role. And, you know, this really kickstarted his career. He was typecast, very heavily typecast. I believe he had a contract with Universal and they put him in everything they could, no matter how small, to put his name on the marquee. So if you saw a horror movie that came out from Universal all through the 30s and all through the 40s, it may have had uh, Bela Lugosi's name on it, no matter how small the role. One of the things that's cool, though, is his work with Boris Karloff. And if you don't know Boris Karloff, he's, well, he's the original Frankenstein's monster. That's uh, that's his big one. Um, they worked together in 1934's The Black Cat, 1935's The Raven, and 1939's Son of Frankenstein. And also, uh, apparently, their relationship wasn't so good. Oh, no. Well, that's disappointing. Yeah. Yep. They weren't like best buddies always having tea and talking about spooky things like I imagine they would. I'm going to pretend they were best buddies. Bella Lugosi was in nearly 50 horror films, including Dracula. As I was putting all this together, I was thinking of your dad because I was like, if I leave something big out... We'll be hearing from him. Yeah. Probably if you leave something small out, we'll be hearing from him. He knows (laughs) it all. He knows everything. Yeah, which is cool. So this really helped me try to be fairly thorough. I just wanted to call a couple out besides Dracula. Island of the Lost Souls. That's a great one. That was in 32. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein in 48. That one is fantastic. I love Abbott and Costello. That's the only other time that he played Count Dracula. Aw. He's in The Wolfman. His character, the name is Bella in that. Very clever. He is in Frankenstein meets The Wolfman, uh, which was 1943. And we already mentioned The Black Cat. And he is uh, the Bride of the Monster was another one in 1955. I feel like there's a missed opportunity for him to play Dracula in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. It would be like the uh, Avengers Infinity War of Universal movies. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's kind of too bad. Of course, our modern appearance of Bela Lugosi in pop culture is Tim Burton's Ed Wood. Martin Landau won a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his performance back in 95. I still have to watch that. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I keep hearing. That's why I need to watch it. Yeah, it's in our library. And then just to end on 
you know, this love for Bella Lugosi. There's a great article on the Mental Floss website, and it's called 12 Surprising Facts About Bella Lugosi. And I just highlighted a couple that stood out to me. He was lieutenant in the 43rd Royal Hungarian Infantry during World War II. He turned down the role of Frankenstein's monster in that film. I think my dad's told me that he like didn't want to take the role because there's no talking in it. He loved soccer. Hashtag World Cup. Yeah, we're, we're big soccer fans here. Just kidding. We don't watch any sports. Only horror movies all the time. <laughs> he was a stamp collector and had over 150,000 stamps in his collection. Where do you find the room for that many stamps? I guess you'd be surprised with how many stamps you could fit in like a small space. It's a lot of licking though. Bela Lugosi almost did not appear in Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein because the studio thought he was dead. It wasn't that long after. Like what? Less than 20 years afterwards. Why do they think he was dead? I tried to find more uh, on that story and could not. Um, the, fi- the final note, which was incorrect um, on that article, sorry, uh, Mental Floss, uh, they were like, oh, he was buried in his Dracula cape. And the family has put the, facts out, the fact out there that that is not the case. I want to be buried in Bela Lugosi's Dracula cape. <laughs> Only his, though. Yeah. No one else's. Um, I think the family actually still has it. All right. Well, we've talked about Bella Lugosi a bunch. I've forgotten about what else we have to talk about. Oh, wait, wait, wait. We have to talk about this movie. So there are more people in this film other than Bella Lugosi. Helen Chandler plays Mina. Mina is an interesting role and a, a big part of this movie. She had a pretty tragic life after this film. She had been a theater actor and had been in a ton, a ton, a ton of productions. But a couple of years after this movie, she left Hollywood to go back to acting on the stage. But apparently she struggled from substance abuse and in 1940 she was committed to a sanitarium and then apparently like 10 years later she was disfigured in a fire and ended up passing away on april 30th of 1965 following complications from surgery for a bleeding ulcer and then to to make it even worse her body was cremated because no relatives came forward to claim her remains that's just terrible things on top of terrible things on top of terrible things yeah i don't like that at all yeah it's a sad story i'm just glad that you know her performance is captured in such a big film and and she's great in this movie she's so talented yeah i really i really like how she she just kind of stands up to dracula and i feel like that performance is so good the kind of fear she has from not wanting to turn john into a vampire and it has so much range in this film and just yeah it's it's just a a tragic tragic end to helen chandler yeah and it's i feel like it's such a meaty role especially you know a role for a woman like you know you you list her second after bella lugosi and i agree like john harker i feel like he's thought of as the hero or van helsing but i think her role is so like kind of so much more interesting because you really see her struggling with you know these urges that she feels when she's under Dracula's spell versus fearing him and yet fearing for for John and being afraid of what she might be capable of she's just excellent in this movie so a lot of the other cast uh interesting connections so John Harker is played by David Manners he was in 1934's The Black Cat with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. A little bit of a team up there. And he was also in The Mummy in 1932. It's like British television where there's like 10 actors that they rotate. Yeah. Oh, totally. Speaking of rotated actors, Renfield got that great laugh. Just a really good performance by Dwight Fry. You're not going to do the laugh. You got to do the laugh. No, I want you to do the laugh. You did it really well. (laughs) Um. 
so he is Fritz and Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein that everyone always thinks is Igor. He is Dr. Frankenstein's assistant. He played a second character in Bride of Frankenstein that was cut, a character named Carl. Um, supposedly there's just like one shot with him. Van Helsing is played by Edward Van Sloan. He's also in Frankenstein. He's also in The Mummy. And he plays characters that are doctors in both of those films. He is in a movie with Boris Karloff later on. 1940s Before I Hang. I really want to see this movie. It's about a physician on death row for a mercy killing who is allowed to experiment on a serum using a criminal's blood but secretly tests it on himself. He gets a pardon but finds out he's become a Jekyll and Hyde. That sounds amazing. Wow. I really want to see that. Any kind of accidental Jekyll and Hyde story I'm into. Dr. Seward is played by Herbert Bunsen, and he's the one that is in charge of the, I guess they would call it a sanitarium. He's kind of tasked with watching over Renfield. And then Lucy is played by Francis Dade. That's a, everyone does a great job, I think, in, the, in their roles in this film. The film is just shot beautifully. I love all of the sets back when Universal had this giant lot, and they... I believe they kept like the sets up for years and years and years and years and reused them in all sorts of productions. And, you know, you mentioned earlier the Spanish version, which is really interesting because they essentially used the same script and would film when the crew wasn't filming this version that we're talking about today. One of the kind of haunting things that we were talking about uh, is the opening, which the film opens to some classical music. And it's act two of Swan Lake. And that's the one it's... Yeah. That's good. That's really good. Um, old movie, not a lot of taglines, surprisingly. Um, the first one was just kind of a tag on the poster, and it Carl Lamel presents the vampire thriller. And the next one is a little more of a classic in our, I think, in our wheelhouse of these taglines, and it is the story of the strangest passion the world has ever known. I guess that's vampire passion. That is interesting. It makes me want to think about all of the other movies that I just want to put that tag on for humorous reasons, like Lars and the Real Girl, (laughs) the story of the strangest passion the world has ever known. Nice. I like it. Yeah. They capitalize P for passion in the stuff that I saw. It's weird. All right. So we're going to do something. We have, we're going to, I'm bringing this back, Chelsea. Uh, We're going to recreate a short scene from the movie. So Chelsea will be playing the dual roles of Lucy and Mina, and I'll perform the roles of Jonathan Harker and Dracula. This is Jonathan Harker. The Abbey could be very attractive, but I should imagine it will need quite extensive repair. I shall do very little repairing. It reminds me of the broken battlements of my own castle in Transylvania. The Abbey always reminds me of that old toast about lofty timbers, the walls around our bare, echoing to our laughter as though the dead were there. A nice little medley? There's more, even nicer. Pass a cup to the dead already, a glass to the next to die. And then Mina says, oh, never mind the rest, dear. To die, to be really dead, that must be glorious. Why, Count Dracula? There are far worse things awaiting man than death. I love that scene. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's my favorite of the movie. Just reading it poorly, it gave me chills. Before we jump into this related topic, just kind of wanted to get your overall thoughts on, on this movie and talking about the true crime, but just thoughts on, on that as well. 
yeah, I think that it is so, as I mentioned in the true crime portion, it is so unrelated to the real story. We did watch Bram Stoker's Dracula actually the next day. And that has the connection to to Vlad Tepish. Basically, Dracula is Vlad Tepish in that movie. That is not the case in this movie. It really is, you know, uh, in, in name only. <laughs> Uh, but I, I I I love this movie. It holds up so well. It is so well acted. It's beautifully shot. I mean, it's it's a classic. It's every time they zoom in on Bella Lugosi's eyes, I just want to like cheer. Oh yeah. Uh, it's and I think that one thing it does suffer from well not it does I don't want to say that it suffers from it but it is hard actually now kind of going back and watching it having seen you know many other interpretations of the story and I was like wait isn't this one thing supposed to happen isn't this thing supposed to happen it's like it's a little hard so I was watching it being like wait isn't Amina the reincarnation of his lost love and that's not touched upon at all in in this movie but I think for what it is it's perfect what did you think of the movie, David? I really love this film. I think that it's just such a great classic universal monster movie and a, a great piece of history. And I think you're right. This movie holds up, but it does get me confused at times because I'm waiting for things that don't happen in it. And when we're talking, you know, when we're just talking about it now, kind of the whole world of Dracula blending together. Um, it really makes me want to see the play as it was written back then. I think that would be really cool. And I've, I've never seen it performed live. Um, if any of you listeners have, let us know and let us know about your experience because it just seems like it would be really cool. Yeah, I think so. And I, I do see how, especially when adapting it for the stage, it would benefit from you know changing the story and kind of making it all take place in, in one location. So you know, it, it seems like, yeah, in the novel, there's more back and forth. So I thought we could talk about, Chelsea, if you had any favorite Dracula movies besides this one. Twilight. Oh, wait, you said it has to start Dracula. (laughs) (laughs) That's a joke. I mean, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Actually, I love that. I would say that that is definitely up there for me. Sorry, I I really love (laughs) love Bram Stoker's Dracula, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, But they they went out, out of the way to really make it similar to how it would have been done at the time had we had a, a couple of more modern practical techniques, but they also didn't use CGI, which at the time would have probably been Jurassic Park came out the next year. And that's when our minds were all blown with CGI dinosaurs. But uh, this was all done with makeup and, and uh, forced perspective and models and old school transitions. And, and I, I love it. I know Kenu is kind of a little wonky in it, but it's, it's okay. It's I'm pretty cool weird it. seeing him in it. <laughs> But one of my favorite actual just Dracula performances is The Monster Squad, 1987's classic monster team-up directed by Fred Decker. And I think you've actually mentioned how much you like that performance of Dracula. I think it's great because he really, I think, studied Bela Lugosi. And I think there's some similar mannerisms there. And he even kind of looks similar. So I guess what I like about it is how similar it is to Bela Lugosi. Yeah, uh, Duncan Rieger is so good. And I got to meet him briefly last year at Horror Hound. Did a photo op of the Monster Squad crew. And that was a, a dream come true. And he's really tall and very nice. Yay. In honor of your father, I wanted to give The Horror of Dracula, the 1958 
Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, Michael Goh, and uh, Melissa Stribling. Hammer horror movie directed by Terrence Fisher. A huge shout out because I think it is fantastic. Yeah, Christopher Lee is excellent as Dracula and he is Dracula in so many movies. To me, I feel like Christopher Lee, like Bela Lugosi to me is not super scary as Dracula. Whereas I feel like Christopher Lee, it's like there's something about the way he plays it that's just like, a little bit more scary to me oh it's a lot more scary yeah. i think yeah it's like not quite as suave he really seems more like a monster you know bella lugosi they don't show him they show no fangs or him really like showing the, the wounds on any of his victims and yeah I think that's definitely kind of the opposite of what the the hammer draculas are there's uh, 1922's Nosferatu, directed by F.W. Morneau. This is interesting because they made it with the intention of it being Dracula, but they did it unauthorized. And they, I believe there were like lawsuits all over the movie. And so that's one of the, the reasons why um, he's Count Orlock. It has a very different feel. I think also with that makeup just makes it very, very different than I think what most people typically think of for Dracula. Count Orloff. Not to be confused with the, what's the snowman in Orloff? Olaf? Uh, yeah, Olaf yeah. in Frozen. Count yeah. Olaf. Count Olaf. Ooh. Ooh, that's weird. Actually, there's a, a Nosferatu, more contemporary movie called Shadow of the Vampire, which is really great. And it's Willem Dafoe. Is that the one about the making of the movie yeah, or something? Yeah. They, but they present it as if Count Orlock is really a vampire because there is a lot of weird, there are a lot of weird stories about the actor who portrayed him. He's an actor called Max Schreck. But yeah, there are a lot of movies that have uh, Dracula as the main character, the main vampire. And then, of course, just got to give Fright Night a shout out because uh, Jerry Dandridge is just a little bit of a, of a Count Dracula in a way. Oh, yeah. Plus, it's just an excellent movie. So. It is. It we is. also, we rounded out our vampire movie watching with Lost Boys. So it doesn't all need to be about Dracula. That's right. Yep. Yep. Three vampire movies in three days. I guess really Max in the Lost Boys would be the... Uh, the Count Dracula-esque character. Yep. And all the boys would be like Dracula's brides. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, that is Dracula, the story of Vlad the Impaler, otherwise known as... Vlad Tepish. Or, or Sepish. Or Tepish. <laughs> it's fascinating how um, he, uh, he was a real warrior, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i feel like although it was not a crime back then it would definitely be a crime nowadays a, a war crime well, that was intense well we hope you guys have enjoyed our discussion going from kind of the extreme of the uh of the counts to the more gentle bella lugosi uh, i guess you have gary oldman is uh is a little bit closer to the uh the real vlad tepish yeah only sexier it's a very sexy movie i think that's why david likes it so much so thanks for joining us on uh another patreon exclusive we're really excited to get this to you guys and um thank you so much for your generous support um your yes, generosity means thank so you much so so much thank you and as we wish you farewell on this dark and spooky evening it's not actually dark and spooky it's pretty nice out right now just remember death is but a door and time is but a window we'll be back ah ah ah